Welcome to the Real Clear Defense Podcast Hot Wash. I'm John Sorensen. Today we are talking with Andrew Milburn, the founder of the Mozart Group, providing training to Ukrainian forces in the field. He retired from the Marine Corps in 2019 as Deputy Commander of Special Operations Command Central. He is also the author of a memoir about his 30 years of service in the Corps called When the Tempest Gathers. Andy, welcome to Hot Wash. Hey, John. It's a great pleasure to be on. Thank you for inviting me. Absolutely. So uh, one of the reasons that I wanted to talk to you, uh, especially at at this moment um, in the context of the Ukrainian counteroffensive, is it's been a while. You've been doing this since the beginning of the conflict, basically, and you occupy a really interesting interstitial space between the U.S. administration, NATO forces, and the Ukrainian forces. But you, of course, are uh, in Ukraine up near the front and in, in the middle of it. And we are looking to you both to understand a little bit more about what Mozart Group is doing, but just to gain your perspective on what you're hearing from from the Ukrainians and your interactions with them and what the real needs are at this moment in the conflict. So just briefly, I think most of our listeners are, are familiar with Mozart Group, but for those that aren't, and because there may be some misconceptions, just briefly explain what the Mozart Group is and, and what it is that you're trying to accomplish. Yeah, thanks, John. And uh, I, there's a term that you use there, interstitial space that I have to steal, and uh, I would use there often. Um, But no, that was a great way to describe it. So Mozart Group, we're a volunteer organization comprised of veterans. Uh, I I don't say U.S. In fact, U.S. membership is now we're in a minority. Uh, We are truly a foreign legion. We've got 11 different nationalities. Um, Nearly all of our guys tend to be either special operations or, you know, in the case of the Brits, we've got a a couple of Marines and uh, and a guy from the uh, Parachute Regiment. But I, I want to say that we don't confine our recruiting to special operations. It just seems to be that's how we ended up. You know, it's an extraordinary group of individuals. I may be biased, but, I, you know, I was in the military 31 years. And this particular group of guys, uh, I will say, are probably the, undoubtedly the, the tightest unit that I have been in. Maybe it's because they are volunteers. All right, we do two things. And then I'm going to tell you very importantly what we don't do. So we do two things. Uh, number one, our core mission is training, as you pointed out. We don't just focus exclusively on Ukrainian SOF. We, you know, our criteria are units that are in the toughest part of the fight and the uh, units that have requested our help and are receptive to training. And here's a key part, whose officers uh, are willing to participate in the training uh, to include learning, you know, planning. It, it, this is no, you know, no great revelation, but it's no good training uh, the rank and file if the officers don't understand how to employ them effectively. So those are our criteria. We, we are swamped with requests, uh, more so than we can meet. Uh, what we have requested Ukrainian military and Ukrainian Special Operations Command is assistance with prioritization so that you know we can focus on those units uh, that really need it the most. Uh, but we do have a good feel for what those units are, both in the South and in the East. Are the requests for training coming from upper levels, from MOD or from uh, lower down in the command chain or platoon level? It's a very good question. So initially, the request came from uh, high up, not not within the Ukrainian Armed Forces, but within the Ukrainian Special Operations Command from General Hanahan, who was then head of uh, Ukrainian Special Operations Command. And then in the case of the Azov Brigade uh, from Andrei Beletsky, who, who heads up the, uh, the Azov, which is 
as you may know, it's quite an iconic organization. I know it's controversial in the West, thanks to Soviet misinformation, Soviet Russian, whoops, Russian misinformation. But uh, but nevertheless, it is a totemic. When I say brigade, it it carries the name the Azov here carries much more weight than the numbers would uh, would suggest. So yeah, so from the yeah, initially it was. Fun, they, they they were they were heavily involved in the response in 2014 and the, the yeah, protests yeah, yeah. in they, 2014, uh, and were kind of some of the first units that went off to the Donbass to uh, to res- respond to the Russians coming in, and and arguably performed better than the Ukrainian military mainstream. Well, not arguably, I mean, everyone accepts they did. Uh, the controversial side comes from their politics at the beginning of this, when less and less, and you know they. Uh, of course, the accusations that they were extreme right wing, How, however you classify them. I mean, you know, I don't want to get into discussion. The Azov, they are a very capable unit, and, and it was at uh, Andre Valetsky's. Right. So, anyway, my point is to answer your question, the initial request came from the head of those two organizations. However, subsequently, the requests have come from brigade commanders and, and those brigades that are heaviest in the fight. And it's a curious anomaly here. The brigade, it is a brigade commander's fight here. And, and we can talk about the offensive in the north. But one positive aspect of the offense in the north is the fact that it was clearly planned and executed above brigade level. So initially, we were training in Kiev because the fight was in Kiev. You know, remember, this was this was early March, all the way through March to early April, first month. And it was all kind it was a ragtag group of units there were a few soft guys uh, so in soft units, but for the most part, uh, they were territorial defense guys. They were students. They were civilians, you know, and they, they were literally driving in their civilian cars to, into Irpin and Bucha and fighting the Russians. And so we, we got a request from numerous um, commanders, uh, colonels, uh, and various uh, one and two stars. Um, from different commands to train their guys. We were we were doing kind of a short order five day course, which of course was inadequate. But at least at least it taught guys how to use their weapons, how to treat injuries, uh, both that when they are wounded and and their comrades are wounded, um, to keep them alive. Uh, how to move in an urban environment. How to use anti tank weapons. So. It, you know, I feel as though we certainly had an effect, a positive effect. Yeah, these guys, after a five-day course, they get in their cars and they drive to the front and fight the Russians. And, they, you know, they were remarkably successful. Um, I was in Irpin um, the day, it was the day after that the Ukrainians had pushed the Russians out. Um, and Bucha, too. It was a day or two after uh, the BBC broke the news on the massacres in Bucha. I was up there, and the Ukrainian, the guys we were training, wanted me to see what was happening. So it was before civilians had come back in. It was still, it, the, the biggest hazard was UXO at the time. But nevertheless, yeah, they, so we, unfortunately, I, I got to see the, the bodies of the civilians that the Russians had massacred. Uh, and, and there was still Russian soldiers, dead Russian soldiers everywhere in the streets. The Ukrainians at the time was not one of their priorities to, to clean them up. But anyway, so, you know, as, as they pushed the Russians back, uh, we realized we couldn't just stay in Kiev and train units because it was a, it was a long, you know, it, it's the distance to the front got longer and longer. And we realized, too, that a lot of the guys who were already 
being pushed into battalion, formed into battalions, brigades across the military to include the Azov were brand new. They, they, 80% of them um, is our, um, is our estimate. 80% of the guys that we've had to train have never touched a weapon before. And yet many of them have already been on the front line. So, uh, and the brigade commanders, of course, understand the problem and want to fix it. So we moved our training uh, teams forward, one in uh, Zaporizhia in the south. It was actually forward of Zaporizhia in uh, what is euphemistically called the security zone, which is an area where, the civilian, where civilians and journalists and aren't allowed in because it's too close to the front line. And we would go there uh, to train the, uh, the Azov at the time they were working on replacing their losses in Mariupol by raising two new battalions. And um, we trained those two battalions. At the same time, we were called to or asked uh, through, you know, several channels to assist with evacuation of civilians from areas in Donbass that were getting, you know, just getting pummeled by the Russians, Syrian airstrikes. And most non-government organizations to include Western extract groups had considered at the time too hazardous. Uh, I know that sounds like chest beating, you know, on my part, but, it, you know, I'm just stating what, what happened. And it was very hazardous, you know, late late May, early June, places like Severodonetsk, Lysychansk, um, we were pulling civilians out until a day or two before the Russians seized those places. And at the same time, as we were doing that, uh, the brigade commanders there at the time, 5-4 um, uh, Brigade, and of course, it's changed a couple of times since then. We're, we're asking for our help with training. So we were both evacuating civilians and training. And when you think about it, this is a lot of, these are numerous lines of effort, right, for a group of guys who are only right. 20 to 30 at, at any time. So, you know, um, I think getting back to the quality of guys we have, that is probably why we have tended to recruit and vet and bring in uh, guys with special operations background. It, it's not that the training that we do requires special operations background, but but the environment does. You know, the um, it's high risk. It's a risk uh, calculus that we, you know, no, no Western armies have encountered in Afghanistan and Iraq. You know, I mean, we've all done multiple tours there, but the risk calculus here is is just huge. If any of us gets wounded or, well, any, anything happens to us, there's no one who's going to get us out. Yeah, it's not like you you have any QRF backing you up or anything. No, hundred yeah. percent. And um, I and I, I don't want to say and tell war stories, but uh, you have to see a Russian artillery barrage or be subjected to it to understand that nothing pre- uh, previously in your life. And I've done multiple combat deployments, just like many of your listeners, but nothing in my life has prepared me for that. I went through the Battle of Fallujah, uh, which in, in its own way was terrifying. You know, my I, I am by no means. Um, I, I lack that gene that kind of ignores danger. I'm very much, very much aware of danger. And, and but I, but you know, I went through the Battle of Fallujah, um, which was scary enough. But I've got to tell you, the feeling of being subjected to uh, Russian artillery fire—just you know, the whistling sound or when the grad rockets—you um, can see them just like walking towards you. Is it's it's really it's really quite terrifying. So my point here is not to tell war stories. It's to say that the guys we have, they, they have to be able to operate in an environment where they know that l- those layers of protection that always accompanied us in Iraq and Afghanistan are no longer there. I mean, the other day, I don't know, this is going to be a bragging point. I, I'd rather I'd never had this experience, but we were 
we were attacked by a Su-25. I say attack, you know, you shot, you fired rockets. They they were erratic, fortunately, but nevertheless, he threw slower. You know, he swooped low over us, and and it was a uh, uh, as we were changing a tire that had been shredded by shrapnel. You know, that, that feeling alone is kind of gave me a new respect for our enemies. You know, the Taliban and the, um, and, and the insurgents in Iraq, um, because I, I feel like we're on the other side of the fence now. But anyway, okay, so those are the two things, evacuation and training. <laughs> right, <laughs> no, right. But to get to your but, – but what we do not do, John, is we do not do anything that might is uh, counter to U.S. foreign policy. Um, that's important to me. And uh, we do not carry weapons. Um, you know, my guys, uh, time to time, some of them, hey, can we just – you know, can we carry weapons just in case this have and I'm adamant. Hey, you know, if you want to join us, you're not carrying you're not carrying a gun. It adds all kinds of complications, but more importantly, it blurs the line right between what we're doing, which is legitimately there's nothing we are doing, nothing we're doing that is contrary to U.S. foreign policy. We are training Ukrainians, which U.S. absolutely advocates and supports. You're just doing it quite a bit forward of where they would do it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. Further than you know, policy permits. Um, active duty guys or USG employees to do, but the the actions themselves are not against. If we pick up weapons, now we blur that line. It's not that it makes any difference to the Russians. I have no illusions that if we, any of us get caught by the Russians, we, you know, we've seen, we've appeared on Russian TV, which is, you know, again, not something to brag about. We did, but we did numerous, numerous appearances on Russian TV. And there's no doubt about it that regardless of whether we carry weapons or not, they don't. Treat us as Muslims, but uh, it's important to me and uh, members of the organization. If they are going to remain members of the Mozart group, uh, do not carry weapons. From an outsider's perspective, and it's so difficult to really understand what's going on from open source. But the the war from the comfort of thousands and thousands of miles away, it seems like there's really two wars going on. There's a small unit armor ambushes of opportunity unit level war going on. And then there's uh, an artillery war. uh, Thanks in large part to to HIMARS getting in the game. Yeah. But what we haven't seen with the Ukrainian military as much, uh, and this is despite a a decade of, of training from NATO forces uh, is, is that really that, that combined arms approach. Yeah. Have you have you seen the Ukrainian military evolve over the course of the conflict in in terms of how they're approaching? I mean, as as you mentioned, I mean, obviously this current offensive is a much more strategic, you know, with a a, a feint towards Kherson in order to then move towards Kharkiv. If indeed that was what happened, you know, that's still. I, right. I mean, yeah, I'm exactly. Meaning, yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. And we have to give them, you know, credit for that. Uh, that's a great question, John. And uh, thank you for the way you worded it, because, you know, when I read articles or just, you know, what's on online um, and, and from think tanks and everything, of course, uh, you know, I mean, I, I understand that. Uh, well, and it's it's also a product of the Ukrainians as well. The Ukrainians are are very masterful in terms of how they're using video to to communicate to the public what's going on. And, you know, I mean, that's the kind of thing that keeps interest and keeps support and keeps the weapons flowing to them. The problem is this. Those in think tank land and Twitter land or the, uh, you know, the, the suburban Klauswitzes, 
um, are very, you know, it's binary, right? It's the Ukrainians, this is the most incredible combined arms, blah, blah, blah. The, the truth, like so many things, is a little more gray. Let me just give you, you know, my, my thoughts. And, and bear in mind, I'm, I have no God's eye view of this. You know, you know how it is in war. I mean, um, right, even, right. even uh, Ukrainian generals don't. So he's just... Is just my observations, um, but but bear in mind that um, I'm not judging from a single data point. I've been, you know, in the northern front, southern front, and spent a lot of time in Donbass. Okay, to your point, combined arms not a Ukrainian strong point at all. Luckily, not a Russian strong point apparently either. Well, but... no, ab- absolutely not. It's a very that's a very <laughs> low bar. Okay, yeah. <laughs> very low bar. Let's talk about that first. Okay, so the Russian. Russian uh, incremental advances, lots been written about it. Uh, they have learned, and they've become more risk-averse, but they basically, there's not a lot of science to it. They absolutely mallet and pummel um, a, a place, and they focus on pockets, on salience, um, and they just make it uninhabitable uh, until the Ukrainian infantry withdraws and the Russian infantry occupies, right? You know, artillery guys would love that, uh, would love what I just said. Um but it's very, very slow and it's very kind of ineffective. Uh, and, and Ukrainians haven't, frankly, haven't been much better in that sense. If you look at what's happening in the South, it's a very slow, it's very casualty intensive advance. They are advancing, but it's a very slow advance. And they, and the question is whether they can sustain those casualties. Uh, you know, I'm talking about Kherson, um, the, you know, the, the push around there. Now in the North, um, you know, you, you, even in the Western media, um, the, even the Ukrainians are surprised by uh, the, the, I don't want to call that a victory, but the advances there. You know, 3,400 square miles is not something to be sneezed at, certainly. But I am a little aghast at articles that I read in Western press from serious papers that call it, you know, brilliant combined arms, maneuver, this and that. Um, there is no doubting. There is absolutely no doubting the sheer courage and aggression of Ukrainian units. Um, but we have yet to see combined arms in action. They don't have FOs. They don't have JTACs. They don't have close air support. Um, artillery is very, very centralized. So, you know, that's not to undermine their achievement. It actually makes it more impressive. Um, their, their infantry are incredibly brave and, and resilient. And that is something, and they and determined. And that is something that they always have over the uh, Russians and their tankers too. They don't have nearly as many tanks as Russians, but if you watch how they use them, um, you know, again, this isn't from any higher combined arms plan, but, but the uh, tanker tankers at the platoon company level, they, they're very savvy, constantly moving, constantly shooting. They're very, uh, very competent, very brave. Again, I can't pretend to say I was on the front line during the offensive. Um, so I can only tell you anecdotally what I heard. We did get on Saturday almost as far as Izium before being turned back. We actually weren't trying to get to Izium. We're trying to get to a shortcut back to Tombas and almost ended up in Izium. But but my point here is that, you know, from what I'm getting reports back is it was small unit actions, consistently aggressive small unit actions. Um, no doubt about it, preceded by good intelligence, use of artillery. Yes, specifically high mass that kind of won the day. And it appears that like, I mean, it's almost like at the unit level, they're replicating combined arms and the, their use of cheap drones yes. for, uh, for ISR and you know, that, that sort of thing. Yeah. Don't get me wrong, John. When it comes to drones, they are more technically competent. They understand the importance of drones. They, 
um, that is their combined arms. You know, our artillery uh, is something that is very, as I said, very centralized. And, and their aviation um, is, is centralized too. Incredibly brave pilots, but they're not used in the manner that we use pilots as providing close air support to, to advancing infantry. Um, so it's, it's a different type. If, if we're going to call it combined arms, it's a different type of combined arms. And I think we have to be cautious about ascribing, uh, you know, Guderian-type brilliance to the Ukrainian general staff and because, you know, the, the, the jury's still out in the north, even in the north, Kharkiv, right? I mean, right, impressive right. gains, but can they sustain them? Uh, or have they reached their culminating point? Or hold it, yeah. Yeah, they, they are short of all resources. They're short of men. So let's talk about that materiel. I mean, there's, again, you know, open source reports of like nearly two brigades worth of equipment being left behind as uh, retreated. Is that actually usable material? I mean, I guess there's a lot of interoperability in terms of, you know, even just the ammunition of, of what the Ukrainians have and what they they're used to. But is that really a boon? No. I mean, I, I haven't seen the equipment that's being taken in the north. I just want to be clear about that. I will say the Ukrainians are short on BMP-2s, you know, so, so if they're getting those in working order, that's, that's a plus. Yes, all APCs in this type of war are death traps, I understand that, but when you're driving in a civilian vehicle, as a lot of these guys are to the front, a BMP-2 gives you a great deal of protection with 30 mm Slightly less of a death there. trap than a, <laughs> than a and technical. A, and the 30, exactly, and the 30 millimeter cannon, as we... You know, coming uh, has has significant range, as we sadly can attest to, and not sadly, but but um, frighteningly can attest to, as we came out of Lister Chance for an evacuation. Um, we we were almost four clicks. We estimated from Russian advancing Russian forces, maybe as three, um, but but came under accurate thirty millimeter fire. So my point is, so that, yes, some of these weapon systems are useful. But I do want to talk to John. How many how many HIMARS are in country in Ukraine right now? What is it, 26, something like that? I, I think probably very few of us know, uh, but it's it's relatively low. And you and I both know that, you know, with the Gimlers, yeah, the High Mars was game-changing in the sense that it allows Ukrainian artillery to outrange Russian counterparts. And it also displaces quick enough to avoid Russian counter-battery fires. At least, the again, the line from our sofa-sitting uh, Western think tankers, which I'll, I'll, I'll throw myself in with that lot, is that the, the real crucial part of it is that it pushed back the Russian artillery briefly enough so that Ukrainians could get a bit of a breather as the Russians had exhausted themselves. And plus they started getting careful with their, with their depots and, uh, you know, their ammo dumps, et cetera. And, and it gave Ukrainians a little bit of a breather to regroup. Do you agree with that? Yeah, I do. I And don't get me wrong. You know, it's obviously a good move. It was, it was late in the game, but the Russians adapt just like everyone does. Even the Russians adapt. And, and um, there's some factors here that, that undermine the long-term effectiveness uh, or potential of high mass. One is the, the quantities, right? So even if it's 26. Yeah, they're not cheap. You can't run to the corner yeah. store. To, yeah, um, yeah. And, but they what, what they need are the attackers, right, which give them a 300-kilometer range. Um, I understand why the U.S. doesn't provide them. We, we'll get into this moment. I'm not going to make this a, a, a criticism of U.S. Uh, policy, but I will say this, that we're either in or not, right? 
I think now we can, uh, the good thing about this push in Kharkiv, the good thing about the media touting it as a great Ukrainian victory, and, and you, you know, I'm, I'm being honest with you, I'll tell, tell you my caution. But the good thing about this is now in the minds of, uh, of Western governments, I'm thinking particularly about France and Germany, but also the United States, a Ukrainian victory is entirely conceivable. You know, even the prospect of the Ukrainians pushing Russians out of Crimea, it is now conceivable. Um, I'm not saying it will happen, but what I mean by that is, you, you know, you think about um, the German government's arguments against providing Ukrainians with game-changing weapons, that it will only prolong the war, that that, that argument's somewhat undermined. And, and the point is that we're either in or not. We provided them with high mass. Let's just give them attackants, for Christ's sake. You know, we can say, hey, right, <laughs> right. Hey, we, can, we can give them the proviso, do not hit Russian. If you, you know, if you strike targets in Russia, we are no longer your friends, whatever. I mean, Ukrainians are generally, they're not going to want to alienate the United States government, right? So why not give them attackants and make that a really game-changing weapon? Why not give them long-range precision strike drones, uh, the MQ-1, MQ-9? I mean, look what that Bayaktar, look what they did with the uh, TB2. That's a $2 million platform. Of course, we make these high-end Gucci platforms. So it's not that I disagree with U.S. foreign policy. It is, I just don't see any coherence in it. If we're, if we're supporting Ukrainians, then, then we want them to win, right? Then let's give them what they need to win. I would say you've you've been very consistent from day one in terms of recommending more, asking for more, begging for more. And you know, I think that the administration hasn't fully caught up with you, but they certainly have, have moved more in your direction than where they started this conflict. Yeah, yeah, it is. You know, it's just too slow and too incremental. Do you get concerned? Javelins are not cheap. HIMARS are not cheap. The supply chain to, to replace them is long and expensive uh, on, on the U.S. side and, uh, you know, all of the other uh, advanced weapon systems that, that NATO forces are providing. Are you concerned that this is, I mean, especially with winter coming on, that this is just going to drag on and there's going to be that exhaustion uh, on the supply chain side from the West? Very much so, John, but it doesn't have to be that way necessarily, right? So the prospect of winter coming, Ukrainian uh, logistics lines are strained as it is. Uh, we all are tracking the problems of the U.S. supply chain drop, uh, stopping at the, at the Polish border. And when you lack oversight of a logistics supply train, you, don't, you can't have any influence on distribution. Right? So all of those are factors. But, you know, I mean, they, potentially the U.S. can do something to fix that. I mean, why not put contractors in country to, to oversee the, um, you know, the distribution of supply to, it, to help them with the logistics aspect? You know, again, it's coherence, right? If we are providing, if we're providing intelligence that results in the death of Russians, then surely there's no red line that involves logistics assistance that is beyond that, right? I probably didn't word that very well, but we've already crossed any red lines. We just keep creating new ones in our minds. Uh, logistics contractors to help distribution of, of and and a more targeted approach of what what we provide and training, uh, training and country. All right, I'm not talking about U.S. personnel doing that, but look, you've got organizations like mine. You've got plausible deniability. We'd be very happy to help train Ukrainians use of, uh, of these weapons. I understand for the more technical weapons, so HIMARS being an example, you know, in a, um, that it makes sense to call the Ukrainians out and, and train them in Poland or elsewhere. I don't see any, again, kind of a, a single coherent argument on the Ukrainian side. Uh, you've got a country of 40 million, 
um, 750 or, you know, three quarters of a million are in uniform, supposedly. Uh, but very, a very small percentage of those guys are actually fighting, right? You know, there's a lot of guys on checkpoints. So my point is manpower, manpower management is where they need help. They've got the raw material. Um, they, they just need help in, in setting. So these things to me are quite uncontroversial. We're not, we're not killing Russians doing these things, not directly, but we're assisting Ukraine where the government needs it most. Um, you can read in the Ukrainian papers too. I mean, it's not just me or our guys saying, Hey, these guys are under-trained, poorly trained. Uh, the Ukrainians recognize that. They recognize largely that they do have a problem. And it's not going to get better. In a previous interview, you had expressed how emotionally difficult it is for uh, the Ukrainian soldiers to come off the line, to retreat as far back as even Lviv, let alone Poland, to receive additional training. That um, that that feeling of your family members being under under threat, etc. That's the frustrating thing, John. Is I, I, I was very vocal, and I've been, I've been advised to. Stone down. But, you know, I just want the U.S. government officials or DOD guys who are making these decisions to try and put themselves in Ukrainian shoes. It's very difficult to, right? It's hard to imagine the United States actually invaded and, and you know, us taking guys to Canada or, uh, you know, to train, leaving their uh, military members' families um, closer to the invader than they are. But that's that's a good analogy. How would we feel? You know, of course we know. So training and country, especially with the, you know, it takes forever to cover distances here. The trains run at half speed because of um, uh, the threat of missiles. There is, of course, no aviation um, carrying people. So it takes, you know, I mean, for me to, to get from um, Donbass to Kiev is nine hours, 10 hours alone. From there to the border is... Uh, 14 hours. You see what I'm saying? And right. <laughs> um, the, right. the time that you lose by training out of countries. So in terms of regenerating the troops, not not just from losses, casualties, which, I mean, we don't have any really good, reliable numbers on there, but it, it has to be significant. Uh, but just the, the physical exhaustion of not being able to rotate troops off the line in that way. Are, are you seeing signs of that, of the the people that you are dealing with, that you're training? Exhaustion, yes. But the morale is surprisingly high. These guys are salt of the earth. But to your point, yes, we hear of uh, of units, um, well, we, we had direct experience, actually, of a, a unit refusing to obey orders um, after being ordered to attack a village five times in the same way, five days in a row, and sustaining heavy casualties. Uh, these incidents may not be common, but they are there, and you can... You know, you can definitely tell, you can see the exhaustion, the, the resilience and the determination is there, but the, you, you know, the, this is flesh and blood. You can't, you can't put, put people repeatedly into a cauldron uh, as the Russians are creating, in, you know, along the front and expect that not to be significant um, drop in effectiveness of these units. That's my concern too, is there doesn't seem to be any reserve, right? Again, this is manpower management. You go to Kiev and it's like any Western city anywhere, and there's no disparity between the number of young men and the number of young women. And I can't help thinking, wow, if I was a Ukrainian soldier on leave, I would be so pissed. You know, I'm, I'm getting pummeled by artillery every day. I'm seeing 
uh, scale of casualties that are First World War proportions, you, you're not exaggerating there. I, I don't want to, you know, get, get stuff away. But yes, the Ukrainians are, are sustaining um, a rate of casualties that may be unsustainable by, you know, the end of the winter. And yet they've got all these guys who are harding it up in, in Kiev. So I think some hard political decisions have to be made about mobilization, conscription, and they have to be made soon because of the problems already existing in the training site. And I don't know, there's probably other issues involved here too, you know, the logistics support of, of pushing, uh, of bringing more guys into the military. And there's, I, I think uh, too, with some advice, you know, there's probably not a, an effective allocation of where guys in uniform are going. The, the country's covered in checkpoints. The checkpoints are all manned by military guys, you know. Um, the Territorial Defense Force in Lviv is still in Lviv, you know, despite uh, a law passed in early May that Territorial Defense Forces can be sent anywhere. I, I just feel as though uh, perhaps an unequal burden of the fighting is borne by a relatively small part of the population. That's, again, that's really just, uh, I, I think the Ukrainian uh, government needs to make some hard choices soon. Just coming off of something that you said about about the casualties not really wanting to be specific about about the casualties the Ukrainian government Zelensky especially his entire team have been exceptional in both in terms of operational security as well as in terms of public management you know the 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 psychological war on social media etc you know when the russians were mounting at the border everyone was like oh the russians are going to be so great at you know everything from information warfare to cyber etc blah 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 and in fact it's been almost just the reverse the ukrainians have have dominated that space in a lot of ways how is your relationship with the ukrainian mod and do you encounter being kind of in a blind as well in terms of what's going on and what's needed we have no official uh, relationship with MOD. But yes, look, the Ukrainian armed forces and its their strength and their weakness. Um, they're very good at, at certain aspects of OPSEC. They're not so good at other aspects of OPSEC. Um, but I, I worry that it's going to trip them up because you have to acknowledge a problem before you can fix it. Now, Zelensky, a couple of months ago, announced that you know, they were losing between 50 and 100 soldiers a day. Um, the New York Times um, researched, uh, as well researched article, estimated that it was 200 a day. Well, think about that, John. Think about, compare it to Vietnam, right? The uh, Tet Offensive, right? During the Tet Offensive, U.S. casualties hit uh, 200 killed a week, right? And that was, I forget how many were in Vietnam, but it was almost half a million, right? I think I'm overstating that. Um, of course, if I am, historians will chime in. But it, it was, put it this way. Someone will correct us, I'm sure. Yeah. Yeah. But my point is this. Regardless, the, the military, U.S. military in Vietnam was much larger than the Ukraine, entire Ukrainian army. I know that. Um, and yet was sustaining one uh, seventh of the casualties that the Ukrainian military has now over a short period, a three-week period. And yet the U.S. public was not prepared to accept that. So if it's 200 a day, wow, I, I can't comment on that from, you know, how I, I can't tell you that's true or not. Um, I can say, yeah, they certainly in the South, you know, hospitals are full of casualties. And my point here is not, again, not to undermine Ukrainian effort, but to 
just raise an issue again that that manpower may be may be the biggest problem right now, and it's management of manpower and regeneration again, and perhaps so. A, a look at how to reduce those casualties, you know, uh, everything from how they do build their fighting positions to um, how they allocate units on, on the front line when they know that the Russians are just going to pound the, the crap out of them with, with artillery. Um, you know, what, what good does infantry do in that particular environment? Is there a better way to... You see what I'm saying? I think there's, right, I think there's right. room here for, uh, for some advising. You know, I'd love to see a group of savvy former U.S. military senior officers come in. They'd have to be invited in, and that's the problem. I don't think you know, the Ukrainians are very understandably proud. Um, you know, it's just, again, their strength and the weakness. And you know, one of the one of the things that is uh, that was remarkable about the again about the offensive in the north and its uh, success was that they they were prepared. Apparently, I don't know this firsthand. I'm, you know, I'm just reading reports. But they were prepared to tell um, U.S. government, "Hey, here is here's kind of what we plan to do. Can you tell us about these things?" And hitherto, they had not been. So, although the U.S. government was providing lots of intelligence, it was kind of unfocused because they didn't know what the Ukrainians' campaign plan was. It's it's partly, I think, uh, kind of legacy of the Soviet era. You know, information is power. I got to hold on to this. Stars, natural, um, and partly pride, you know, which is a national pride, which is understandable. But I, I would hate to see it trip them up. I, I would, I would like them to see, be more open about. Look, we are these. These are things we really need help with now, right? Because we are concerned that by the winter we're going to be on the ropes. I understand the flip side of that. The flip side is that. While the mantra in the Western press was, oh, poor Ukraine, you know, they can barely hold the line, um, there is definitely, definitely a school of thought that will, by bolstering their defense or helping them, we're just prolonging the conflict, which will lead to greater loss of life. And I know, personally, I've been accused of that. Um, so, so you see, I, I understand it's not, so of course, Ukrainians want to project this, this overriding confidence I, I just like to see a happy medium. I'd like to see, look, look what we can do. Look what we can do when, uh, you know, Kharkiv, right. 3,400 square. But here are things that could trip us up. Can you help us right. with our critical vulnerabilities? And we will absolutely, we have the ability to win. And by the way, we need attack and so we need long range. Right, right, right. Let's dovetail out of that and to say if you were uh, one of those people advising the Ukrainians at, at the upper levels, what would you recommend to them that they ask for? They're not going to get planes. They're not going to get some really big ticket uh, advanced systems. What are the practical needs that really would make a difference from what you're seeing at the unit level and the brigade level? Well, uh, weapons wise, uh, certainly, you know, the attack for the high mass, you know, I, I don't think that's you know, too far fetched. It's not a. It's not going to be a war winner, but it's going to be a game changer. Let me put it that way. Of course, you know, I'm an infantryman. I know infantry. But yes, I would request that. And yes, I would request specifically MQ1s, MQ1s um, again. And I would offer a proviso that we guarantee we will not hit targets. So with these things, I, I would request uh, logistics, in-country logistics uh, assistance. You know, maybe with contractors or. A, to, to expedite the flow of logistics. And I would, um, 
I would request uh, advice, you know, on putting together a coherent campaign plan. Uh, I, I would love to believe that the that the offensive in Kursan was a feint. Uh, you know, I, I'm reading all this stuff in the Western media. Oh, it's brilliant. Yeah, the the difference between a, a feint and a two front is, yeah, yeah. It's, yeah, it's, a it's not attack. a feint when yeah. you're losing thousands yeah. of guys, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's not, yeah. uh, you know, I'd love to believe that. So, it, you know, that's where I see kind of a weakness is in their ability to plan and integrate and really conduct combined arms. So I'm not asking for schooling or courses, but some advice would be good. You know, retired senior U.S. military officers, they would make a lot of money. Think of all the retired generals pontificating on CNN. Send them over here, you know? So just finally, you know, what what's what's Mozart's need? Oh, Mozart. What's our need? Money. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I, we I'm live, shocked that we, that's the answer, yeah. <laughs> we live hand to mouth. You know, it's an expensive business. Um uh, fuel, um, vehicles, uh, you, you know, you, medical equipment because, uh, uh, and, and we have to insure our guys, you know, I mean, you, you name it. And, and, our, and as the Russians, uh, particularly in Donbass and dial in on all the roads, all the roads are registered. So we have to travel cross country. Our vehicles are beaten up constantly. We're losing them to cyclic rates. So we get through. $175,000 a month, and that is all donor funds, all right? And that's every single penny of donor funds gets spent in-country. You know, there's no overheads. But that's, you know, that's the and, – and fuel. Fuel is hugely expensive. We don't only use it for ourselves, but we, we help NGOs uh, with who are running short of fuel if they're doing evacuation missions. We buy humanitarian, you know, food, water for the populations of towns. Who are living in cellars uh, cut off we spend there's all kinds of things we're spending money on you know for me i would love to focus on operations but i can't i i have to focus on begging for money and it makes me feel dirty um but you know that's my role now as 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 head of the group i've got superb operations officers and as much as i would rather be involved in that i have to you know reach out to to request for money i'm traveling with the states we don't need equipment you know, people keep saying, hey, man, we'll send you, I'll just send you, you know, pallets of this and that. Um, that's not what we need because then we have to use manpower to get it into country and it's okay now. With but but given money, we we can buy locally. Um, and so we support the economy and we just, we can use, use money much more efficiently. Andy Milburn, thank you so much for joining us and giving at least your, your slice of this terrible war. Um, hopefully we'll get a chance to talk to you again. Uh, and uh, thanks for coming on Hot Wash. Hey, thanks very much, John. And thanks to our listeners. Be sure to subscribe and rate the podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen. In the show notes, you can find a link to sign up to receive The Morning Recon, our daily newsletter summary of defense news. For David Craig, John Waters, and everyone here at Real Clear Defense, I'm John Sorensen.